You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com for more. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. And what we do here on the show is we talk about Bitcoin. We talk about macro. Uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today, I want to go through the oil market. I was doing a little bit of reading this morning and I posted stuff uh, on Twitter about the oil market and just have some fun. There was a real fun video we're going to watch uh, that I p- did post in Telegram too. I'm going to share that with you guys on the stream here. Go over some macro charts and see if you guys have any things to talk about. Uh, I do have maybe a couple other. Oh, the Fed. The Fed is coming up. Uh, they're going to be their meeting today and this coming up tomorrow. Of course, then I have Fed Watch. Uh, coming up on Thursday, uh, and we'll cover that in depth, what's going on with the Fed. I might do a live stream tomorrow during the announcement. Let's see, when is it? Uh, Just wondering about my other responsibilities. So yeah, I probably can be here for a live stream during the Fed announcement, but we'll go over some of that stuff here today. And what you guys are seeing on the YouTube and on Telegram, or sorry, on uh, Twitter, is that's my website. So BitcoinandMarkets.com. If you go there and sign up, you can get the free weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday now. And you can also support the show there. This is a listener-supported podcast, so uh, check out the different tiers for support. And I appreciate everybody who supports over there. Trying to make this into a self-sustaining project. Uh, been you know, plugging away for years, making good quality content. This is Bitcoin content you can rely on. I've never sold a scam. I've never promoted a scam. I haven't sold any ICO scams. I haven't sold any NFT things. And I've called these things out as garbage the whole time. So you can count on this uh, quality content. And we we come from a rational thinking basis. I want to look at these markets and look at Bitcoin and understand we kind of all understand how Bitcoin works. If if you found this podcast, I, I bet you have an understanding of how Bitcoin works. And if you are a member of the Telegram and you're a supporter of the show, you you have a very high level of understanding of Bitcoin. But what nobody understands yet is exactly how Bitcoin is going to find mass adoption. This is something that we haven't seen in a thousand years since silver and gold were monetized. We haven't seen a brand new asset like this get monetized and nobody knows exactly how it's going to go. And as it does proceed and progress, we need to have an honest look at this because it's going to help our understanding of the world around us. It's going to help our understanding of money. A lot of us think, me included, (laughs) that we have a good grasp on what money is, how money works, why money works a certain way. We understand incentives. We understand stock to flow. We understand all these other things, you know, hard money and and unforgeable costliness and all those different topics. But we don't obviously have a very good grasp of these things or else Bitcoin would already be adopted by everybody. It would be just boom, it's invented. And five five years later, it takes over the world, right? And that's not how it's proceeding. So we need to look at this and try to increase our understanding of what's What's going on? We need to adjust our bias and our assumptions according to the data. 
not just increase the complexity of our theories or disregard certain data. We have to actually incorporate the data and, and use that to increase our understanding. So anyway, that's what I do here on the show. And if you want to support me in this mission, then I need your support. Go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and become a paid member. So, okay. First off, let's watch this video. This is a fun, funny, funny video. So this, <laughs> uh, you guys know the debate that's been going on recently with the ordinals. My take is still the same. That It's kind of like colored coins. There's not real demand out there for them. There's going to be some people that mess around. Fees are going to go up long-term, so this isn't a viable option. Uh, NFTs don't need a blockchain. They don't need a distributed network to work. They are better or best used on a centralized service. Uh, so that's that's it. It's not really a debate in my mind if the incentives of Bitcoin will take care of this. But anyway, there's a lot of back and forth on Twitter. A lot of people are muting the word ordinals, which I think is funny. And this was, there's a back and forth with Luke Dash Jr. and some other guy about this topic and somebody made a song about it. So it's only two minutes. We can, we can listen to this. Wrong, there is no such thing as changing the protocol in this context. The protocol already doesn't allow data storage, data storage. Instant classic, instant classic in Bitcoin. <laughs> Lion and trick in the code. <laughs> uh, okay, let's get into the charts for the day. Let's start with Bitcoin. What do we have here? Let's open up this RSI. I have been talking about this bear div for a long time. 
Uh, yesterday, I talked about consolidation, like a bull consolidation, where the price is still ticking upward, but the RSI is ticking downward. It's a bull, it's a bear div, but this RSI, daily RSI, has gone out of overbought territory back into the main range. Uh, but when I went back and looked at similar periods throughout Bitcoin's history, the consolidation was not over until it hit 50 on the daily RSI, so or very close to 50. Being at 70, that's right at the top of the range, and I don't think that this consolidation is over. That doesn't mean, though, however, that it's going to fall dramatically. Anyway, that's what I'm looking for. The price right now we're recovering uh, on today is up 1%, 23,124 for Bitcoin. So that is what I'm watching. Okay, let's take a look at the dollar. And I did post these all into the Telegram in that uh, chart packet so you guys can see this. The dollar is making somewhat of a nice rounded bottom four green days in a row. So we'll see how this works out. This was the first time we had three green days in a row since back in November. And then if today turns out to be the fourth green day in a row, this will be the first time we've had four green days in a row since pretty close to the top back early November. That's, let's go to the Hong Kong dollar that was in the packet as well. And you can see it's it's continuing to the Hong Kong dollar is weakening against the dollar going to the top of the pegged range, as I expected, uh, which means there is a slight increase in dollar stress in the East Asian markets. So I'm watching that. That That's a way I confirm my uh, thinking about the dollar. Okay. How about U.S. 10-year? Slightly red on the day. Uh, I guess there was some um, economic data released this morning about wages and it was underperforming. So it was an undershoot on the forecast. I think they forecast like an increase in wages of 1.1% and it came in at 1% or something like that. So wages are not accelerating like people thought. And look, if prices are going up and wages don't follow, what does that mean? That means people had to cut back. That means pe demand falls. The volume of demand falls. Yes, you can have a period where money comes out of savings and makes up the shortfall for a short period of time. But once you get past six months, you get into a year time frame, maybe a year and a half of having to go into your savings, dip into your savings, which most people don't have. Most people don't have a lot of savings. So after a little period of that, you know, then it starts really digging into the volume of demand. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And that's why we don't have a wage price spiral here, because there is no way that wages can continue up because there's not a lot of money printing going on. It is all due to supply chains, quote unquote inflation. The price rises are not due to money printing. They're due to supply chain crisis. So um, the 10 year, it's in its happy place right now, 3.5 three ticking up here earlier this morning it was down at exactly at well it dipped under 3.5 to 3.49 percent but it's not reacting you know it's not anticipating the fed what is the fed going to do well 
The 10-year doesn't seem to care much about what the Fed is going to do. It's in its happy place at 3.5. That's it. That's all we can say. Quickly, oil. I don't know if I did put this in Telegram, but uh, it's slightly green on the day, but $78 per barrel. And the S&P 500, slightly green on the day, up only 0.2%, but we'll see how it reacts. The, the market is kind of in limbo right now, waiting on what the Fed is going to do. And speaking of that, let's bring up this tab. This is the CME FedWatch tool. I checked this this morning and I was amazed because forever we you saw these two columns and the choice was, or the market was trying to price in or figure out if the Fed was going to do a 25 basis point hike or a 50 basis point hike. Uh, it had approached 100% and it's still at 99.8% that the Fed will do a 25 basis point hike tomorrow. So I do not expect the Fed to surprise the market on that. So I do expect it to be a 25 basis point hike. But what is interesting is instead of pricing in uh, any percentage of a 50 of a yeah, 50 basis point hike, now the market is actually shifted to a 0.2% chance of obviously a tiny tiny chance that there will be no hike coming from the Fed tomorrow. Very interesting. Uh, most people out there think this is the last rate hike and I tend to agree with that. It's just amazing. Let's go over what the Fed has done here. The Fed has pivoted, Powell pivoted hardcore from transitory inflation, quote unquote inflation, to needing to hike rates. They hiked 25.50, then four 75 basis point hikes in a row. It was It's the fastest rate hiking cycle in history, I think. Uh, then they slowed it. Well, then they did a soft first rhetorical pivot saying they're looking at the cumulative nature of their cycle. Then the next meeting, they do a 50 basis point hike. They slow down. Then they this one is, is scheduled right now for a 25 basis point hike, and then they're done. I mean, easy ramp up, easy ramp down from the hiking cycle. Almost, I mean, if I didn't know better, I, I would think that the, the Fed was expertly captaining the ship. But of course, I know that the Fed is just following what the market does. They're data dependent. And it makes them look smart if they just follow and do what the market says. They try to influence it, obviously, with their words. And that helps this type of thing that we're looking at here with the FedWatch tool, where the market is going to price in a certain thing. Well, that's priced in through forward guidance and through expectation management that the Fed does. Um, but it's not mechanical. It's all rhetorical and psychological. Anyway, so that is very, very interesting. We're watching history being made here with this. Now, also, people are expecting the huge, hard landing recession. But more and more people are coming out and saying, no, it's going to be soft landing. I just saw GM, uh, you know, the huge automaker in the U.S. Well, they're kind of a bank, actually, but a huge automaker in the U.S. They came out and said they're expecting a soft landing. Um. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. This is kind of a, what I have been saying the whole time is that we are returning to a post GFC normal low growth, low inflation. So don't be surprised by a return to low growth, low inflation. And that's kind of what we're seeing. 
Uh, I did watch a Euro Dollar University with Jeff Schneider, and I credit Jeff with kind of opening my eyes to the Euro Dollar system, to how to understand the shadow banking system and liquidity and credit and that kind of thing. Um, but he has really jumped on this bandwagon that there is a major crash coming. He and Steve Van Meter are both big bears. They're almost perma bears right now that they look at the data. They're very data driven, which is good, but they don't quite get that. You know, you can go from 10% nominal GDP to zero nominal GDP. And that's going to affect a lot of the data that they're looking at. Okay. Plus you have an overcorrection and undercorrection, you know, you have these swings and where do these reverberations end up? Well, they're most likely going to end up at a post GFC normal of low growth, low inflation. Okay. That's I think where Jeff is off on his analysis. And one of the guys in telegram posted or asked me about his recent video and I watched it and I was like, man, he, he's just very, very bearish. He's not getting off of this bearish train uh, and it's not going to look good for him, I think, um, because when we do have a soft landing or we have no textbook recession, like there's nothing that the the Bureau of Economic Analysis or whatever, the BEA for the U.S., nothing that they can turn to and say we had a recession in 2023. You know, what, what's Jeff Schneider and Stephen Van, v- Stephen Van Meter are going to look kind of silly that they've been this bearish for so long, but um, maybe I'll look silly. I don't know, but I don't think so. Okay. What else do we want to talk about here today? Oh, I have another chart here. This was interesting. So low strife, he's Bitcoin OG. He's been around for many, many years. I remember probably following him back in 2014, 15 timeframe. But uh, he has this, he points out that this is only the third monthly engulfing candle ever. That is pretty intense. Of course, a bullish engulfing is extremely bullish. And on the monthly bullish engulfing candle is extremely bullish. And you can see the first one was back in 2011. And it led to the run up from $2.00 up to $1,200 matching. <laughs> oh, what is that? That's, is that a 6,000% increase? Can you imagine if we had a run like that, a repricing event? I mean, there'd be a million, right? It'd be over a million easily. It'd be like 10 million or 20 million or something like that. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, that's a huge bullish sign. Um he points out the other one happened at the end of 2014 in the bear market for Mount Gox. And that was a bullish engulfing, but it was kind of a bear trap or a bull trap. Um, so maybe that's what this one is, but it's very interesting. I thought that was a pretty good chart. Okay, let's go to the oil story. I did tweet about that this morning or this this morning. The headline here is BP believes oil demand will peak near 2030 as shift to renewables accelerates. And I wanted to talk about this because, I mean, there's been a lot of this peak talk in oil. You know, you had peak oil for a long time and people thought that um, oil was going to exponentially rise in price. I mean, they're economic illiterates that think that, but um, 
that oil was going to exponentially rise in price because we've hit peak oil production and oil demand was just going to continue to go because there is no self-balancing apparently in economics or in uh, nature, anything like that. Anyway, so peak oil was, uh, it started, I don't know, around the year 2000 or so. And it went on for, I don't know, 10 years, something like that. But I started talking about peak oil demand a couple years back where I thought that we were entering an economic slow period. At the end of this credit bubble, we the economy is going to slow down. Our oil demand globally is going to slow down. A lot of these economies that were built up during the bubble times are not ever going to return to previous levels of economic development. And I mean maybe ever, at least for the foreseeable future. We're talking hundreds of years, perhaps. So places like China, places like emerging markets, they probably will slow down and never get back to their 2019 levels. So if that's the case, you know, oil demand is going to drop. Plus we are seeing, I'm not a big, huge promoter of renewables, but there are renewables out there that people are using more and more. Um, some very interesting things like micro nuclear reactors. I saw that there is one being put in, in the U S now it's going to take several years to, to build, but it's, it's like a, not a micro one, but it can power about 250,000 homes, something like that. And it takes up almost just like two residential lots almost in a neighborhood. Uh, so it's small footprint, but it can power all these places. So there's new things coming out. Of course you have solar continually getting better by the time that these emerging markets ever do recover let's say best case scenario it takes them 20 years or 50 years by the time that they get back up to pre-2019 levels we're going to have different sources of energy perhaps you know different mix at least so peak oil demand makes a lot of sense to me plus as we'll see here in this story and other places that I'll show you in other charts, um, where the world is still not back to 2019 levels four years later. So that kind of supports my idea a little bit of peak oil. But let's read this story here. So uh, global oil demand is expected to peak between the late 2020s and the early 2030s as the Russian invasion of Ukraine is accelerating investment in clean energy and governments are looking to bolster energy security with higher shares of renewables in the energy mix, BP said on Monday. So that's not why at all. So accelerating investment in clean energy, why even put clean in front of a term like that? Uh, they're investing in renewables like solar and wind and nuclear should be put in there. You know, so there, yes, that's true, but no, nowhere in that sentence is talking about economic slowdown that we're going towards the end of a multi-generational credit bubble and we're going to slow down. The economy is going to continue to slow down. Of course, they don't say that. Okay, in one of the most closely watched industry reports, the BP Energy Outlook for 2023 with projections through 2050 says that oil demand falls over the outlook in all three scenarios as use in road transportation declines, okay? Quote, global oil demand plateaus over the next 10 years or so before declining over the rest of the outlook, 
driven in part by the following use of oil in road transportation as vehicles become more efficient and are increasingly fueled by alternative energy sources. I mean, I agree with that. Um, let's take a look at some of the other data, see if that supports this. Okay, this one here, let's start with this one. Uh, this is the total world liquid fuels consumption. Back here, 2019, it peaked out. I thought it was higher than this. Maybe it's a slightly different number that they're they're drawing from here, but it peaked out in this particular chart at 100.8 million barrels per day. 100.8 million barrels per day. Of course, 2020 saw a huge decline down to 91 million barrels per day. This in 2022, we were at 99. And I talked about that a lot uh, throughout the year where they were estimating about 99 million barrels per day. They're projecting, this is the, sorry, the EIA. And that stands for U.S. Energy Information Administration. In 2023, they're projecting a 100.4. So remember, 2019 was 100.8, 100.4 million barrels per day. So not even back to an all-time high in 2023, and then surpassing the all-time high in 2024 is their projection. But, big but, global economic slowdown. That's not being factored in here, of course. It's always a progressive view on these things. I mean, they're, it's just a model that they're plugging things into. And the model includes like a rough estimate for growth, economic growth. And these economic growth models are wrong. I'm telling you right now, they are wrong. So we're not going to get to a new all-time high in 2024. They're already not estimating that for 2023. And I think they're just going to have to revise these down. That's that chart. Um, I wanted to look at U.S production. Uh, this is U.S. crude oil production by region. And you can see, of course, the total there was all-time high back in 2019, where we pretty much became a net energy exporter. The gray dash line right here is current. We're almost back to those levels. We're over 12 million barrels per day uh, being produced in the United States, and it's forecast to just increase. Uh, but I do want to point out this Permian region. So this is definitely shale. There could be other shale in here, but this dark blue at the bottom is shale. And one of the guys I follow, not religiously, but I do watch a lot of his content. And that's from Peak Prosperity over there, Chris Matherson, Matt Matterson, whatever, Martinson, Chris Martinson. And he was a constant saying that we wasted the shale revolution, that the shale revolution was over. But look, it's at all-time highs. And this is with the bad administration putting on all, as many hurdles as possible to U.S. oil production, trying to humble the United States to keep us dependent on the world, to keep us involved. I mean, this the shale revolution is the largest geopolitical event of the last 20 years because it made the U.S. not dependent on the rest of the world. And so we can't, we can withdraw. We can go back to our, na our nature, which is isolationism or at least non-interventionism. That's how the U.S. is a non-interventionist country, believe it or not. It's only been different since World War II, basically. And they had to lie to get us into the, into that war. Now that the U.S. isn't 
dependent on the rest of the world for oil. I mean, guys, the U.S. is coming home. We're just living through the death pains right now or pangs, pains, whatever. Uh, what else we? I wanted to show? So this is proved reserves of natural gas in the United States. It increased by 32% in 2021 alone. And what have I been saying about oil reserves for so many years? Is they It increases every single year. The amount of oil that's in the ground <laughs> increases every year, even though we're burn, burning it at, at approximately 100 million barrels per day. And this isn't oil, this is natural gas, but it goes to show that we're not running out of reserves anytime soon. At first, you got to slow down finding proved reserves. Then you got to start eating into those, <laughs> into the amount of oil in the ground, which we haven't done. We haven't even scratched the surface. Everywhere we look, we're going to find more oil. Like I said, the, the shale oil in the U.S., 6 trillion economic barrels, 6 trillion. And that doesn't count looking in other places, Brazil or Russia. Overall, what I'm trying to say here about peak oil demand is that there's more and more reserves. There's going to be more and more supply that's cheaper and cheaper and demand is falling off. So what is going to happen to the price of energy or especially oil over the next uh, 10 to 20 years? It's just going to continue to fall. It's going to be very hard to keep it stable. Uh, this is the structural, definitely this is what's going to happen structurally with the with the oil market. Okay, so that's, I think, all I have for today, guys. Let's take a look at the price one more time before we sign off. Bitcoin's still holding about the same, 23128 right now. So we'll see how this develops. But uh, let me check and see if there's any comments from Telegram. And I don't see any comments left. In there, so Dan has one here. Let me see. Okay, Dan says, I keep saying that CPI is open source. Is that true? Uh, quote, BLS does not disclose the raw data it uses in its formulas. That seems pretty close source. Okay, let me open this up. The headline here is, this is from the Toronto Star. It says, is the U.S. purposely underreporting inflation? It's hard not to wonder when you look at how it's calculated, how a 400% increase in the price of a TV ends up being a 7.1% decrease, according to calculations at a Department of Government uh, statistics, okay? We are living in a world where people seem to relish in the consumption of misinformation, that is, different versions of reality and alternative facts. Some of the stuff people believe is beyond loony, for instance. It's easy to dismiss the truly wacky stories from the QAnon world about politicians and Hollywood elites drinking the blood of babies. Okay, maybe I should say that if I'm streaming to YouTube. Uh, it's very difficult, however, to detect the deception that takes place when government agencies report on matters related to the economy. So difficult, in fact, that most economists don't even understand it, never mind the general public. One of the most damaging deceptions emanates from the methods used by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics calculation of the Consumer Price Index, CPI. The reported CPI is currently running at just under 7% annualized. You might be surprised to hear that number would be closer to 15% if the BLS used the same formula it did in the 70s. Okay, go to shadow stats. Okay, I mean, I'll just immediately push back on that. 
idiocy. Uh, what's the price of oil? You know, what's the price of gold? We we can look at these things and look at what the prices have actually done of flat type of commodities with price of copper, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we can we don't need any confusion if we look directly at the prices of commodities. Also, you have to believe 15 percent a year. Since the 70s. 15% a year. Go go and calculate what that would be for all of these different products that you're looking at. Okay? It's not it's not legitimate. You would know for sure that prices were going up 15% but your salary isn't. I mean, are wages rising at 15% too? If not, then how, you know, are is our standard of living going up? Shadow stats doesn't pass the smell test just initially you have to be looking for that inflation you have to be trying to find some validation for your bias if you think that it's really been 15 percent since the 70s it doesn't make any sense and i used to believe this if you go back uh 20 years or so i believed shadow stats and uh another thing here about this is we should expect the formulas to change. We don't count the cost of horse feed is not in the consumer price index. The cost of a buggy whip, the cost of a buggy, you know, the cost of getting horseshoes on your horses. The cost of all of these things that are that we don't use anymore. Right? Technology changes, what we consume changes, and we should expect the CPI to change its formula, to think that we should measure the cost of straw bricks from 2000 years ago in a CPI is ridiculous. And I know that's an absurd example, but that's what people think when they think that the CPI shouldn't change. Okay. Yes, the CPI should change because our consumption changes. And I'll, I'll touch also real quick on the, what's it called? The Chapwood Index. Uh, it's the same thing. It's just bias. It's pure bias where they their goal is to show higher inflation. And they say that in their mission statement that CPI understates inflation. So they're going to uh, overstate CPI. Okay. At, the, at some point in the 1990s, the U.S. Congress decided the old formula needed updating. So they introduced several methodolog- methodological improvements. I mean, one of the big things that people say is about housing and that they count housing as, you know, owner, what is it? Owner equivalent rent now and not the price of a house. It doesn't make sense to count the price of a house. It's paper value anyway, right? You don't count the price of your stocks. You don't count the price of your house. It's something that needs to be consumed. And what is that? Well, about the consumption cost, the proper way to measure shelter would be the price for rent. That, that makes total sense, to me at least. It also separates the investment from the actual shelter. So what they're measuring is the, the shelter component. So it makes it makes sense that they have shifted it. And like I said, you should expect shifts in CPI formulation as we change, as our economy changes. 
Okay. In fact, over the past 30 years, they have changed their methods of calculation 20 times, making any sense of their approach is impossible. Okay, whatever. As the BLS does not disclose the raw data it uses in its formulas. So that is what uh, Dan was pointing to. In the art of illusion, keeping a secret is the greatest sleight of hand. These changes fall into two broad categories. First, adjusting prices based on what the BLS refers to as hedonic changes in quality through innovation, where the consumer derives additional pleasure from a specific product, such as a computer, TV, or appliance, results in reducing or eliminating the real-life price increase. So what they're saying is, you know, as a computer gets twice as fast, but the price only increases by, say, 25%, that's actually, in their calculations, will decrease the CPI. I mean, I can see how there there is confusion and I'm I'm not going to come out here and be a supporter of every single piece of the formula. But it does make directional sense here guys. You have to admit it makes directional sense. So, I can do more today with my smartphone than I can with my Apple IIe in 1982 or what 84 whenever it came out. You know, it just makes directional sense. Yes, of course, computers, as they get faster, as they get um, have better software, the software improves, the UX improves, uh, there's more apps for doing more things, you can be more productive. Okay, it just makes sense to say that. Now, if you don't, and I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not defending the exact formula that they're using here, but it makes, it doesn't make directional sense the other way saying that there is no productivity increase. So we need to count raw price. Like that is definitely not correct because, you know, you're getting more for your money. It's a different product, right? It's a better product. It, that doesn't make sense. And th this point about we don't, they don't disclose the raw data it uses in its formulas. I don't believe that. I will have to go back and check um, I think they might not release it immediately, but they release it after a period, you know, like maybe a year or two or something like that. Um, I'll have to go back and check on that. But if that is the case, then yes, I would be wrong that it's not quite open source, but the formulas are open source. That's that's for sure. Or else people couldn't complain about it. Uh, the approach they use is so complex. Even Stephen Hawking would have the difficulty deciphering it. As an example, the following is the BLS's own attempt at an explanation of their approach when calculating the hedonic value improvements of a TV set taken directly from the BLS website. Quote, item A is a television that is no longer available and it has been replaced by a new television item B. Okay. The characteristics in bold differ between the two TVs. There is a large degree of quality change and there is a very large 400% difference in the prices of these TVs. Rather than use the 400% increase in price between item A and item B, the quality adjustment rate of price change is measured by the ratio of the price of item B in the current period over an estimated price of item B in the previous period. Okay, but that's not, why is that hard to make sense of? Why Why is that so complex? They're saying that they're taking 
these are different products. Product B is obviously better. And so they're, they're to make sense of it today in today's money, they're going to say, what would item B have cost previously? I mean, that to me, what that does, maybe it's not perfect. Obviously I'm not defending this as perfect. I'm saying it makes sense. So B wasn't built in the past because it couldn't be built, right? So by using item B's previous cost before it was made in the past, you are incorporating the idea that the entire economy is more efficient and more advanced and more productive. That's what I would say. This is just my initial read through of this. I haven't really thought through this exact argument here, but that's what I would say. To derive the estimated price of item B, we use the following equation. So even though the price is up 400%, it turns out that it is actually a negative 7.1% after the quality adjustment is applied. I mean, this is one example, and it's an example used to confirm a bias. I'm sure there's many other examples that we could use that would be the total opposite of this, or that would surprise you the other way. So once again, this is just one piece of evidence that they're pulling out and they're applying these things. And guess what? If the BLS would go in and fix this a little bit to make it a little bit better at finding these prices like this, these people would complain saying that they're making changes to the CPI. So you can't have it both ways. You either want this to be changed or you don't want it to be changed and you think it's perfect. But anyways, um, okay. Other calculation methods used by government statisticians is substitution. I guess I'm not going to read through all this because I am running up here on time a little bit. But uh, Dan, thanks for bringing this up. I will look into that about the actual raw data not being available. But that doesn't compare to the Chapwood Index, which the Chapwood Index is their formula is closed source. You know, at least the CPI... Off the bat, we can agree at this point that the formula is open source. The exact data perhaps is not, but I will look into that and I will get back to you. So, All right, guys, breaking in here on the edit. That was not the most clear. That was my first time reading through that question and that article is a typical CPI hit piece article. Um, I think I got my main points across that I'm not defending CPI. It's exact. Uh, accuracy or anything like that, but it is dire directionally correct. It's the best thing that we have. It is open source. The formulas are open source. And since I have gone back and checked the data, much of the data is open source. It doesn't tell you what uh, the exact respondent to an exact price, like uh, number 100,000 said about milk, but you can get like how many people responded, what was their general answer or the average of their answer, you know, and you probably could get a data dump if you went out there and did some sort of FOIA request or you wanted that data, you probably could get it. So it is the best thing we have. It, it, but if you want to strip out all the complexity, you know, you don't like the hedonic adjustments, you don't like these other calculations, then let's just strip out everything and look at the prices of commodities. We can look at the price by weight, by unit, you know, whatever. Oil is half price from its all-time high. And when did most of these all-time highs happen? 
right around the end of the great credit expansion, which was the great financial crisis. Oil hit 140. It's now struggling to break 80. Gold is at its right now. It's sitting around its its high that it hit back in 2011. Silver, not near its all-time high. Corn, wheat, copper, all these things we can look at and say, okay, if there really is 15% inflation, we should see that in the price of basic commodities. But we don't. That's, that's what I would say. If you want to strip out all the complexity of CPI, just show me the prices then of basic commodities. All right. I don't know if I made it any more clear, but let's break into the end of the show here. Anyway, that's where I'm going to end it for today, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. Support my work. Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube. BTC Market Update is the brand new channel that I created. Also, Rumble. I'm on Rumble. I'm on Odyssey. I don't really post to those as much as I should, uh, but I am on there. Uh, so follow me there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. And I appreciate everybody that supports the show. Thanks for watching and listening. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye.